Hey, you are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. You're right now hearing the blazing guitar of my guest Robbie Folks playing Hamilton County Breakdown back near the beginning of his career. We will be talking about his most recent Grammy Award-nominated album, Upland Stories, the songs America is a Hard Religion, and Fare Thee Well, Carolina Gals. And we'll look back to 2005. The album is Georgia Hard. The song is Where There's a Road. And we'll conclude by listening to a track off of his second solo album, 1997's South Mouth, I Told Her Lies. To learn more, check out www.robbiefolks.com. It was good to see the show in Madison recently. That was a great show. So I will have played, I looked through for an uh, appropriate instrumental on your various albums and decided on the Hamilton County Breakdown from the very best of Robbie Folks 1999 to play during the intro speaking, which I know that that album came out in 1999 and it's not actually a compilation of things. It was just things that had not appeared on other records, right? That's right. Yeah, it was odds and ends. So do you know when that track was from around? Like, is that the beginning of your career? 1989. Okay. Oh, all right. So yes. So that's kind of why I was pointing at that is, can you say a little about briefly to get us within a few minutes to playing the first song, the journey from being in a bluegrass band to then what, 12 solo albums later? <laughs> And putting out this thing that has just been nominated, Upland Stories, for a 2017 Grammy Award for Best Folk Album. Well, so that's the story of my entire discography. That's <laughs> like a 25-year, almost 30-year story. But at the time, I was with the Bluegrass Band, uh, Special Consensus, that are still a going concern in Chicago. It's the sort of the... Um, I think it's Chicago's only probably bluegrass band with a national profile. They've been around since 1975, and it's the project of Greg Cahill, who's a great banjoist. And so I was with them in the 80s, and Hamilton County Breakdown is a Fiddleton standard. And one time I was with uh, Benny Birchfield, who was married to Gene Shepard, and he claimed that he wrote this song, although I, it doesn't have any specific official authorship that I know of. But Benny claimed that, that he wrote it, I think, when he was with the Osborne brothers. But anyway, that's hearsay. What was the trajectory of the question? So at, according to just the bio that I was reading, I guess your Wikipedia page, it was you were in a, a bluegrass band for a while and then decided to go solo. And then the connection between what you do now, which is very rooted in traditional music, but but obviously has your inimitable lyrical approach to playing actual bluegrass standards seems like a fairly long leap. I think the special consensus thing was a sort of lateral move in my career. It was the first band that I was in that allowed me to do music full time. So it was the first full time job I had. Okay. In music. And ever since I was a kid, like I started playing in bars and coffee houses when I was 15, which was 1978. And so ever since I was about that age, all I wanted to be was, you know, I wanted to put out records and be a recording artist and songwriter, maybe, I guess. But then the question of how to make money and pay bills and, and have it as a profession, I never really addressed much in my mind in advance. So when that job offer came along, I jumped on it and really all during the eighties, like I had coterminous with that band. I had, I was uh, in uh, rock bands in town and I was doing gigs under my own name and writing okay. songs and making demos and sending them to record companies. So I was doing a bunch of stuff at the same time. And I always thought that, you know, one of these things will click and maybe it'll be a side man. Maybe I'll end up being a, a guitar player in a group, or maybe I'll end up being a bluegrasser. I kind of doubted it, but maybe I enjoyed doing it. So for a while, I thought, well, whatever clicks, that'll be my my window in, and I'll massage it into something that closely resembles what I initially wanted to do, which is make records under my name. Okay. And even the stuff now, so America is a Hard Religion is the first song we're going to play from the new album. And this has... Well, you're the one with the encyclopedic knowledge of old-timey music. For me, this sounds like something from the Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, but that's kind of the, the limit of the depth. I, I'm a, I enjoy country rock. So, oh, uh, that is reminiscent of uh, 1972 birds. Or the like, no, that's the extent of my country uh, depth. A little bit of I've had a few bandmates that got me into select older things. Tell me a little about this. So, I know this song and a couple other songs are are referring to some 1930s. This James Ag 1936 trip to Alabama is that is that what's informing the style here or just the lyrical content? 
Well, it's a bit general, but I was working on a show for a while with a playwright, and we were working on sort of musicalizing the James Agee experience and maybe deconstructing it a little bit. And so for the first batch of songs that I wrote for that, I just sort of attacked the problem of writing a musical about a weird subject like that with using various angles. And some of it was to lend some voice to Agee's autobiographical experiences, and some of it was to, like, uh, like America is a hard religion was like an effort to speak from the voices of the people whose lives he chronicled, the cotton tenants in Alabama. And the musical style that you referred to, I'm by no means an expert on old-time banjo styles at all, but like some touchstones for me would be the music of Doc Watts, and Doc has always been a real huge hero to me ever since I was probably three years old. And he was, among other things, a really great banjo player. And his version of Doc Boggs is, Doc Boggs would be another touchstone for this kind of music, but Doc Watson's version of Doc Boggs' Country Blues is illustrative of this genre, if anybody cares to hear it. It's clawhammer banjo and simple, uh, yet deceptively complex melodic phrases with a kind of uh, lamentation kind of a tone to it. Some rule from the sky, some inch cross the ground. Their bent backs turn to all heavy and above sends down. Scratching puff from this earth, what gold it may give. Fattening on feasts to come, laboring now to live. And America's a hard religion. Not just anyone may endure. America is a hard religion. Some never do surrender. Sent to a savage land, mother knows not why To plant a seed in rocky soil and perhaps to die Freedom come it may to this child instead Freedom comes, freedom goes, father is surely dead And America's a hard religion Not just anyone may enter America's a hard religion Some never do surrender Paid by thanks for praise Yet we soldier wrong Trials to test our hearts, doubts to make us strong Cheered by loved ones that from the graveyard say All my tears surely gone after I fly away And America's a hard religion Not just anyone may enter America's a hard religion Some never do surrender All right, so the claw hammer banjo, what makes it a claw? How is that different from a regular banjo? <laughs> it's not regular or irregular, I guess. It's a style that is based on African styles, and it's the it's probably the oldest style of banjo playing by that measure. Like the more modern style that people might be familiar with is based on Earl Scruggs' three fingers. It's called a three-finger style, which is uh-huh. based on rolls, and the three fingers used to the middle and the index and the thumb, and you wear picks most of the time. But on the claw hammer style, you don't use picks. You make your hand in the shape literally of a claw, kind of like you're holding an egg, your hand is semi-closed, and it's, uh, for me, because I grew up playing in the Scruggs style, it was a really counterintuitive style of playing, and I started trying to teach myself with the help of some other good banjoists in 2009 when I bought the banjo that I use now. So it's a style that I love, and it's uh, a midlife crisis kind of an effort to get my head and hands around that style. And was this written sort of as a banjo expression piece, like as an excuse to do that on the banjo, or was, again, you were approaching this from... It was written on the banjo, yeah, because you write on different instruments. Like, I do almost all my writing on the guitar, but if you tune the guitar differently you get different results. If you compose on the banjo, you get different results. If you write on the piano, different again. So um, definitely if you're the kind of guy like me that 
writes hundreds and hundreds of songs, you're always trying to like find new things to do. So it's not the same as the last time that you sat down to write. And yeah, that particular tune came out of the banjo. Okay. So it was not that you were trying to do something for this musical and you said, let me try it with a banjo. It was that you were just learning the banjo, this style and decided to, I'm just trying to figure out which thing came first. (laughs) Well, no, I was writing for the musical, okay. and it seemed to me like the banjo was an appropriate instrument to use. It was the kind of instrument that people in Alabama that A.G. chronicled would play. I bet of the six families that, that he was with that there was a banjo player among them for sure. I mean, it was just really common back then, and that would be the style that they played in. And the style is very expressive of rural folks in the first half of the 20th century, for sure. If that's the kind of thing that people would be playing as folk music in 1936, what does that mean in terms of when it was probably actually written, that style, things that they would be playing. Oh, I don't think I understand. So folk music sort of by its nature, well, this has been, if we sing this land, is your land. Unless you're a musical scholar, you have no idea even when that came from. And so if we're trying to date, this is a sound that you might have heard in the 1930s. Does that mean it more or less arose in the 1930s? Or it is a folk style that was prevalent in the 1930s, meaning it was inherited from 1880 or something? This might be beyond my pay grade, this oh, okay. kind of a question, because I strongly feel like every, like there's nothing new under the sun, but I can't name you the antecedents. I'm sure it has antecedents in 19th century uh, minstrel banjo. And okay. that, uh, by the time that it started popping up on records, you know, through Uncle Dave Macon and String Bean in the 30s, that it was a style that had been around for decades. And as I say, probably rooted in Morocco and Africa in a thousand years before that. But I don't know the specific bloodlines of it. Okay. Can you say a little about what this song actually means? This America is a hard religion. Is this referring to something specifically out of the AG book or are you inventing an image that somehow goes with it? I think it's kind of invented. I was thinking like, what's a a point of view or what's maybe a phrase that could express something that's accurate about America and heartfelt, but also a phrase that could be endorsed by a red state guy and a blue state guy, both, you know, people on both sides of that divide. And I think that phrase could be comprehensible to either side of that divide, that to love America involves you in irrational propositions sometimes, you know, including offering up your own children to be killed, maybe, which is something that rural people probably know more about than urban people, I think. The song was supposed to be coming from a rural white sub-working class character, you know, in the play, but it's addressed to, I was picturing it addressed to the kind of people who'd be sitting in the theater, you know, so it's kind of tricky to come up with something for them to express sometimes that doesn't sound like a sociological effort or that doesn't sound like a caricature, or that doesn't sound like a really bending over backwards effort to artistically put yourself in the mind of someone that's uh, in a different box than yourself. And then as this theme continues, I see you're talking about working off the land for subsistence farming or uh, sent to a savage land, mother knows not why. Okay, so this is just the colonial experience paid by Thanks nor praise, yet we soldier on. Trials to test our hearts, doubts make strong. Okay, so it just sounds like life is hard. Like, you're just setting up an image here, right? It's not trying to, like, spin a substantial part of the story here. Well, every terrible thing that your country might do to you, living in abject poverty and taking away your children and putting you in the situation where you're in, like, the cotton tenants were, like, this uh, feudal, this modern, like, sort of feudal situation mm-hmm. with, with no apparent escape. Everything that's done to you, you react to by strengthening your faith in the institution and by loving it all the more. And I think that's... Uh, like similar to what you do to a god that abuses you. Okay, yes. I I had seen that this was supposed to be about the agey thing and and was looking up that he was actually a journalist and wrote this up as a picture of the state of the sharecroppers in Alabama. was rejected by the editors of Fortune, apparently. uh, Right. Published, I guess, in a couple different forms as a full book. Yeah, so he was going through the same sort of conflict that I was just describing, where he was writing for one audience about a group of people that weren't in that audience and struggling with... was an explicit part of his idea of writing that book was to present these people as creations of God, just like you and I are. You know, he was a Christian. And through the book runs a tone of outrage at the very assignment that he's going to be doing this survey and living among these people and chronicling their misfortunes so that the readers of Fortune magazine can better understand their travails. He's just, he summons this very deep outrage at the whole concept of what he's doing. So it's a book that keeps kind of turning on itself and turning itself inside out and 
impugning its own motives, basically. So is writing explicitly for a musical like this, it seems like so many of your songs are story songs or you're developing a character through it, you know, whether it's a very tongue-in-cheek character or playing with country cliches, you know, talking about the hard-drinking kind of character, or, I mean, was this just a very natural extension of the kind of stuff you've done before, or was this a very different sort of thing? I think it was different than anything I've ever done, and so far nothing has come of it except that it formed, you know, a centerpiece of this record that's doing well for me. I was just so pleased to, to, that Brian and I started working on this. In fact, I wrote to him this morning and, and said, uh, you know, my record was nominated for two Grammys, and I think that validates kind of what we were working on in a small way, and I think we should return to work. Brian was called away to a, a TV show, so the whole thing was kind of backburnered for the last, I don't know, year and a half or something. But, you know, meantime, I, I was really happy with the way those three songs on the record, A Miracle and, and America's Hard Religion and Alabama at Night, came out. So I go for some. Well, and very different uh, different approaches musically. I mean, this one, again, this could sound like something from the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack in terms of you know, very authentic. Whereas the Alabama night, the single is, yes, it's identifiably country, but it sounds very new. Well, thank you. And by the way, I really don't like that movie. So I, I, I reject okay. that as a, uh, Sorry. no, no, no. So few touchstones, we Northerners. I, I lived in Texas for a while. <laughs> I'm not holding you to blame for that. I think a lot of people would take that as a reference point, but I, I think that movie was kind of bullshit. Anyway, that's just a by the way point that I, I don't use that as a, as an entry point into this stuff. Yes, you don't need that. Let's contrast this. Let's get the second song on the table here. So another song from the new album, Fare They Well, Carolina Gals. Do you have any introductory words before we play it? It's a kind of tune that wanders around. And if it has any apparent organizational structure, I think it does have one, but I think it's kind of subtly impressed on the listener maybe as it goes on. I think I, I allowed myself to uh, loosen the reins a little bit on those lyrics. So it's semi-autobiographical, right? This is, these are, these are flashes of where you lived in the early to mid seventies. That's right. Okay. And it's the closing song in the album. Those loose slim gals would swing their feet down the airport side of Franklin Street And I'd watch them in the not quite innocent way I'm looking at them this evening Thinking about the plans I put on hold While the town got smaller and the days unrolled Now there ain't but two stories told And this one's about leaving Well, I remember Katie, then Rosalie I was pressing my luck when I tried for three Some shrink from a shameful deed And me, I'd do it gladly If I hand you a line, you know that's true If I give you a couple, then it's yours to choose One story from a total of two Has got a good chance to end badly So fairly well, Carolina gals, I'm going where you can't find me. There'll be trouble in the days to come and a lot more fools behind me. Just a lad about yay tall Sniffing that glue in the Northgate Mall Down where the anchormen say you all And kindness is a show for strangers All them B-school boys and old hippie men Sweating in the sun to no clear end I made a medium to poor boyfriend And a pretty good house painter So fairly well, Carolina gals I'm born where you can't find me There'll be trouble in the days to come and a lot more fools behind me. Home, Dad's heart couldn't be human 
like a simple phrase in a well-made tune. The stack of leaves sound good on the moon. You don't need a cane chair and a hound dog. He'd sing the blues. I just smiled. I was such a calm and settled child, thanking the Lord, never dreaming the while he was laying out my downfall. So with my hair in my eyes and my chest out swelled, I stood on her porch and I buzzed the bell, peeking round the blind, knowing full well that her folks was gone to Boston. They mean quiet when they say lights out, but that was love making and it made me shout. Daddy would have come home fast, no doubt, if he knew what the weekend had cost him. So fare thee well, Carolina gals, I'm going where you can't find me. There'll be trouble in the days to come, and a lot more fools behind me. Escapes my mind. Don't worry, baby, it's just the wine. On second thought, it's not the wine. It's just me talking. We men pour out our problems like we think that they're unique. They cheer when a baby starts to speak. Ought to give 'em a prize for stopping. Baby, don't you be too surprised if I cash in the farm after Mama dies. Get a Cadillac and just ride till the Pacific meets the bumper. Stop looking at me like I'm lost or screwed. Like things had to leave where they led to. With the house half gone to Kudzu, I'd be lucky to get a clunker. By luck I landed in the Upper South. By God I gotta make my own way out. I should've read the signs by now. I should've heard the locals buzzing. Oh, Tommy Thompson's dead and gone, and I've been feeling not so strong. Chapel Hill hasn't done me wrong. It was fine until it wasn't. So fare thee well, Carolina gals. I'm going. Can't find me. There'll be trouble in the days to come, and a lot more fools behind me. Very well, Carolina gals, I'm sorry you can't find me. There'll be trouble in the days to come, and a lot more fools behind.、Me. Beautiful tune. I love the arrangement here, and I, I watched you, a recording of you playing it live. So that when you have a song like this, where you've got these beautiful violin solos, then like, oh well, what am I going to do? But you fill it in with such an amazing, you know, multiple. Like, you know, it's, it's so many verses here. So you got like three or four different guitar solos that. Seem like they would have taken so much work to work out that like was that just something you would work out the live arrangement after this is already on tape so that all that effort didn't go for naught or is it just easy for you to come up with extra solos like that? It's easy. I mean,、okay. in a word, it's easy. And a thing like that that you start like I started playing that maybe a year before I recorded it, and then you know it's been a. Years since the record came out, and it just kind of continually evolves. You know, not in the sense that time gets added or taken away from it, but it's the kind of thing that lets you improvise. And that kind of country music or the kind I play shares that with jazz. You know, you feel it in the moment and you respond in the moment, and so it's it's not ever the same any two times. But you say the length of the solos. You know, it's going to be eight bars between verses three and four, and it's going to be sixteen bars between. 
seven and eight or whatever, that that pretty much stays the same? Yeah, not always 100%, literally. But I mean, you, you come out of a verse and then you do a chorus and then you play through a chorus or whatever it is. And you might add a couple bars on at the end before you start singing. I mean, in that sense, there's a little looseness in it. But basically, the layout is known in advance and it's the same every time on that song. Yeah, so talk more about the structure here. I mean, we've got at least a climax or, you know, the end part where you start just reflecting on talking too much. This, I think the best lines in here, we men pour out our problems like we think they're unique. They cheer when a baby starts to speak. They ought to give him a prize for stopping. And then it sort of takes off. There's still another little bit after that. So what is driving this? Is this the story of getting out of town? I met a guy at my high school reunion that had been there ever since. Okay. And he looked the same and he was doing the same things. And I thought about, you know, the guy that stays around. And then I thought, well, maybe he wants to leave. Like I wanted to leave, but he can't quite make up his mind. And in fact, that part that you just quoted was the first part. I think that was the first part that I started working on in that song where I pictured the guy with a woman in a restaurant. And by the way, a particular restaurant in Durham, I, I had it in my mind for some reason, like this late night place where they're sitting and he wants to leave town. And he's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, and he's thinking about how to, how he's going to tell her that he's breaking up with her because he's leaving town. And they both had a little wine and he starts to blame the wine. And then he candidly admits to her. First, he says, well, this is just the wine. But uh, I think I'm going to. Well, actually, it's just me telling you I'm, I'm leaving you. And, you know, how not to be an asshole in that situation. You know, you're inevitably a, an ass in that situation. But that was my uh, that was that a little melancholy tableau was my entry point into that song. And everything else kind of backed up from that. And it's not enough that he's doing the same thing for all these years. It's the eventual reason given for this or added reflection is that because Tommy Thompson, the banjo player, is dead, right? That's an emblem that times are changing okay. irrevocably and the past that he grew up in and felt comfortable in is slipping from him. And I mean, that's the same thing that happens to all of us in life, I guess. And through the song, he remembers, you know, he flashes back on his childhood. His mind just kind of roams freely. I mean, I think that song, not to sound too grandiose, but it sort of models itself on the nature of consciousness more than of songwriting lyrics in the way that it expresses a mind that is kind of out of control. You know, it wanders hither and yon into the future and into the past. And through these like circular wanderings of the mind, this full picture sort of emerges over the course of the song of the situation that the guy's in, which has not accomplished anything like he wanted to accomplish. He hasn't moved. He's stuck. And his past kind of haunts him. And the fact that his mom has died and now he can sell the house. And that gives us a window into his into the futility of the situation. Oh, now I'm going to buy a car. I'm going to go to the Pacific Coast and I'm going to dip my feet in the ocean. And obviously, he's, he's just not going to do that stuff. You know, he's just stuck. I was a little unclear on the shame. Some shrink from a shameful deed. This seems to be in the context of seducing various women when he was younger or something. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. So the thing that intrigues me just throughout your various songs, you know, when I saw you live, even though what is so great about this album is the sort of mellow, rich arrangements and the little nice gestures even in here. I should have heard the locusts buzzing. And then you've got these two guitars playing off each other. So there's so many little moments like that. Whereas when I saw you live, it was, we're doing a hootenanny. Like it was upbeat. It was the humor. I mean, is that just because that works with audiences and you can't do, unless it's a, a particular kind of show where everybody's going to be quiet, then doing... Alabama at Night and this song and Needed and all these other uh, soft, pensive songs just doesn't work. I'm seeing two different things that apparently are happening within the same year. So is this just live versus studio or what? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I wasn't aware. Honestly, I don't remember having done that song, but I did that song at that show that you saw at High Noon, you're saying? No, actually, I don't remember if you did this song in particular. Oh, okay. Just that... The songs that in general that you played, yes, it was anything but country. It was, you know, making heavy use of, well, I don't know if any of it was traditional bluegrass, but there sure were a lot of times where you would do the little solo and then the mandolin would do the little solo. And it was so that anybody, even if they'd never heard your songs before, even if they couldn't hear the words because the PA is often bad in a live situation and it was kind of hard and in that particular show it was like a party with 10 different bands in a row and people were just talking it was very hard to hear what was going on but yet because you're pulling these strings you're pushing these buttons of hootenanny or something like it's just exciting and fun is that part of the live strategy or just that particular show or 
Well, I think in general, like my set list, I just always think I'm going to divvy up the ballads, you know, and I'm going to have like maybe three or four ballads over the whole hour and a half. I'm not going to burden it too much with making people be quiet and listen. I don't know. This is getting kind of specific, but sometimes I'll go out for a week with one set list or something, Mm. especially if it's a quartet or some kind of big lumbering configuration like that where I don't have the freedom to like do whatever pops into my mind at the moment. I'll have a set list and it'll be the same. And so over the course of the week, we'll hit a listening room and we'll hit a bar and we'll hit a performing arts center and we'll hit a house concert and we'll hit another bar. And, you know, so every environment, if you were hitting it as a single thing, might call for a different, as you say, strategy. I think at the high noon, I think I must have had in the back of my mind, because I played there a bunch of times, that it wasn't going to be a precious, quiet, listening environment. Sure, sure. And as it turned out, you know, I took the stage that night a little bit worried that we had a trio as a mandolinist, a string bassist, and, and me, and we were playing in the mics. And everything else there was pretty noisy that I heard that was around us. So we had to immediately, like, redefine the room and bring people down to our dynamic level. And to their credit, I think it worked. And when we had something soft to convey, I think the room generally kind of went with it and it worked. But it was it was a little touch and go a couple of times. So there's that. I mean, there's like uh, gearing it to the room, but not very. I just don't feel like I need at this point to like totally change what I do to suit any particular room. Like the room has to meet me halfway. I feel like those are fair terms. And the other thing about the set list in general is that I have like 12 records behind me. So I'm also careful not to overburden it with brand new stuff because people want to hear old stuff. So, you know, half of it's old stuff and half of it's from the last couple of records, probably. Okay, so it seems like you've gone through different stages in terms of how traditional the musical forms are going to be. It always seems that the lyrics are very consistently self-contained, often humorous, but they're not at all generic. Whereas you might expect to hear if somebody comes out of a bluegrass band, I understand that was not your origin. It's not that you were just a bluegrass traditionalist and then decided to write original stuff that you were doing that from the very beginning. I'm just still trying to figure out sort of what the relationship between this individual creative, the thing that makes you you, and this tradition is. To focus it back on Fairly Well Carolina Gals, you had something very specific in mind in terms of America is a a hard religion, in terms of uh, what historical thing you were connecting to. Is there anything like that in mind when you're doing a song like Fairly Well Carolina Gals, or is that just from the heart, you know, this is just what comes out naturally now? You're not referring stylistically in any conscious way to something in the past. Well, I think musically, I'm probably always beholden to something or other. I feel like I am. And I'm a pretty experimental guy, especially for a country singer. So I've tried at various points to open that up and to move into, you know, I've done stuff that has features of random noise in it and stuff that has electronic sections in it and stuff that just kind of wanders out of, here's this chord, here's this other chord, here's that chord, you know, just wanders out of the chordal, you know, like, you know, Miles Davis is an inspirational standard in that area, stuff that escapes the, um, the tyranny of chords. Sure. Often I notice you do that like when you're hitting the height of an instrumental jam session that just to like ratchet it up and make it a little more insane, you know, it's just to open it up quarterly there. Yeah, totally. Like on the, the cigarette song, we, we usually like have a freak out thing on that. I think I, I'm just always elastically pulled back into forms, you know, and into structure and constraint. And the constraint is the blues. I think, you know, the blues is endlessly fruitful and interesting. And so is the diatonic scale. And so are 12 notes, you know. I think those things, I can work with them for 20 lifetimes and still be interested in them. Apply that specifically to Fairly Well Carolina Gals. What do you think you were channeling here? Or is that even a question? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm trying to remember. You know, oddly enough, it could be that I had in mind for that someone explaining on the PBS News Hour about the contour of classic Irving Berlin show tunes. Because now that I sing it for myself, it's like a really odd like continuous descent on that, you know, from the happy 
it starts on the third, which is really happy. And then the same thing, a degree lower. And then it really sinks toward the last half of that. And it ends on the open four chord, unresolved. So I think I might have had that in the back of my mind. Like interesting ways to set up melody that where the melody is part of the meaning of the thing, especially since the character, the narrator is talking and he's not committing to fixed meanings a lot of the time or he's unreliable and he's fooling himself with what he's saying. But the melody tells you the story that everything's uh, going back to the same place again. Da, 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 da. No matter how he tries to, da, 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 here I am again, I'm trying something new. And then in the end of the phrase, he's back in the playing place again, you know. So I think that melody does have a meaning to it. It's part of the reference because he's reminiscing about the 70s. Musically, what this connotes to me is like Kenny Rogers and stuff that was popular at that time. But again, that could just because I don't know country a lot from before then. Because of the melody or the subject matter or uh, the way you just sang that. But <laughs> it could be. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's get the third one on the table. So here's another flavor. This is Where There's a Road, the opening track to Georgia Hard your 2005 album. So we have a more explicitly country song, but with different connotations. Say some introductory words in before we play that. It's actually kind of an example of a song that I've tried to move away from on my last two records because I noticed that I was writing a lot of music about music, which is fun for me and which I love doing because I love music. So, you know, I'd write a song, oh, what if George Jones... What if it was 1985 and there was more lyrical freedom in the air for country songwriting, but George Jones was committed to the same musical style that he had in 1954 that I love so well and those two things. So I'll think of things like that or I'll just think, you know, what if I was writing for a George Jones song from 1957? And in the case of this song, I was thinking, what if I was writing for a New Grass Revival record in the year 1989 or something like that? That is what the pre-chorus, the To the Wild Unknown, the thing that changes actual words every time, seems to be what connotes to me. That band? I'm not educated enough to say, yes, that band. But Well, that band, if people don't know it, it had Sam Bush. Sam Bush was the leader of that band, and his name at this point might be better known than that band's name. It also had Bela Fleck, who's a well-known you know, banjo player to people. And so the opening of the song sound even though it's not Bela playing it it sounds a little bit like that and it is Sam playing it so I think from the opening banjo uh, mandolin thing it puts it right in that space Jeff Davis was no county line to my daddy more like a wall he could not see beyond yeah, to me that farm was just a jail And the day I hit 16 I bailed Took off the Georgia dust and I was gone To the wild unknown Where no light to guide me shown And the wheels had ideas of their own They joined the ride at a Joplin pawn shop And the hardcore band somewhere around Santa Fe Town to burn, not a cent to waste, no rock unturned. Days like those you got to throw away.
make this any harder This tramp you lost is sure no cause to cry No flesh and blood could find my hand You can ask a sad old Georgia man Since I've been gone It's been one long goodbye Yeah, so nice three chord pattern repeated, but you've got just a beautiful banjo mandolin layered thing that then you can have your power chord acoustic guitar then add some <laughs> variation as it goes forward to layer on top of that. It's an exciting and odd collection of instruments, and it starts with that back porch thing. And I remember that Sam was playing the intro. I don't direct these guys hardly at all because I'm, I get to direct these masters that I get to work with from time to time. But Sam was playing it kind of prodigiously and I remember saying it to him can you play it more like Norman Blake and if your listeners don't know like Norman Blake has a really really simple streamlined way of playing mandolin or guitar and Sam knew what that meant right away and he just started strumming it in that like groovy simple strum way that you hear at yeah. the top of the song um, so to go from that as you say into the and, and then there's a pretty big sound of a drum kit, a pretty big sound of an overdriven electric guitar. It's a kind of a wild, unusual group of sounds to my ear anyway. Yeah. So you're saying you're trying to get, get away from songs about music. And I was just looking back at the lyrics to Fairly Well Carolina Girls that you still are talking about Stack Lee and you're talking about the father singing the blues and like you can't escape. <laughs> yeah, I don't need references to uh, like literal references to songs. Sure. I mean, like where the whole song is less about life or less about creative philosophical thought or whatever. The opposite of a poem in a way. It's an effort to write a song that recalls specific other music that you love. Oh, okay. So that's where that style of storytelling of Amy joined the, the ride in a Joplin pawn shop in a hardcore band somewhere around Santa Fe. That storytelling style is from that. It sounds a little like 70s rock tropes to me it always does when i sing it and it does when i hear you say it back too it's like i'm never a hundred percent comfortable singing you know the pawn shop what is it about the pawn shop amy joined yeah. the ride in a joplin pawn shop it's not amy it's the p bass that joins the ride so they bought an instrument in a pawn shop so the precision bass joined the ride because they bought it at a pawn shop can't trust online lyric sites no definitely not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's an amy in there Amy, please don't make it any harder. This guy, I don't know, it's this kind of uh, chauvinist 70s kind of like vibe on the narrator that, that I can't completely get behind. But I don't know, the song came off well in the sense that, you know, it sounds good. And Sam re-recorded it himself on a later record of hits. And so I was really, to me, that was the validation for it. Okay, so that's him doing the mandolin solo at the end? Yeah. When you're writing a song, obviously with the first song we talked about, America's a Hard Religion, that it was not just a vocal and melody like that's the song it was a conscious attempt for you to do something on the banjo and that was like an essential part of it is it more normal to have a song like this where really the song is you know in terms of what you would come to the band with you said you don't like to direct them too much is i've got the lyrics i've got the melody i'll play it through once and then everybody can join in is that or do you have a little more of the architecture of the song in mind in terms of at least of this is kind of where I want solos to go. Like, when was the decision made to put the, the mandolin solo at the end, for instance? I'm a pretty heavy planner when it comes to the recording. So I'll plot it out both in my head and on paper almost all the time in advance. And yeah, I have an idea of like this happens here, then that happens, then this instrument solo is exactly that long. So I'll usually have a pretty exact layout of what happens and bringing charts and stuff like that. Well, and I guess I was projecting back. I know on the new album, I had read that everything was recorded, that for the most part, each track was recorded live, right? 
or at least the instruments. Did you put you put the vocals on later? No, the singing is done at the same time. There's four songs that have a backup singer, and that was an overdub, like sure. the little harmony line. And then there's two songs that have banjo on it. Besides America, there's two songs where banjo is part of a bigger ensemble. And so there's one song where I played banjo over my guitar part as an overdub. Another song where another guy played it over his fiddle as an overdub. So it's 90% live, including the singing, with those exceptions I just named. Has that been your method through many albums, or is that just something that you were doing for this one? So where there's a road, which you would think anything with, with an actual drum part, it's easier to just layer it piece by piece like you would a regular album. <laughs> is that how this was done? Or was this also, again, just the band is all playing together, or at least the rhythm tracks? That was a live tune where there's a road. Okay. I don't remember if I sang it live or not, but I think I sang it live. And I think the tenor and baritone lines, well, I know the baritone line sung by Sam was an overdub. And I know that, the, yeah, the, both the harmony vocal lines were overdubs, but the playing and my singing were done live on that. And yeah, I'm a live guy. It's just worked out better for me over the years and pretty much hardened into a modus operandi. And so I've tried to fool with it. But I think in order to go the opposite way, I would just have to have a lot more experience. You know, when I've experimented with it, it just comes out like an experiment. It doesn't come out like I always know what I'm doing a lot of the time when, when I layer it piece by piece. And plus, it's just more enjoyable to do it live. It's enjoyable to hear it bang, like that's it. Like, And everybody's communicating with each other. As I say, in the moment, communication is the thing that I go by in performance. And it's also what I like to hear on records. And so you're either simulating that expertly, which I can't really do well, as I say, or you're just doing it, you know, you're communicating in the moment. Like I was hearing things on that Michael Jackson covers album that you did <laughs> that sound like they fall into that category of experimentation, not just in the fact that you're mutating the arrangement from the original in interesting ways, but just in the way that you were recording it, or was that again, trying to get like these songs, a more or less live take? Yeah, those were recorded in the same way that I'm describing. I mean, often at kind of a cost because we did a 23 minute version of don't stop till you get enough, which was kind of like it had symphonic constituents. And what you hear on the record is a piece of it. There's like four minutes, I think of what we did. And then it fades. That's a crazy version. I love that. Oh, thank you. Well, it went on into like a sort of a sketches of Spain section. It went on into a fast sort of new grass revival section. And then it went into a like an improv jazz section and then went on into three other sections after that. And it, and as I say, the running length was like 23, 24 minutes. And to record that. Like I wanted to record it live, which is kind of a dumb way to do it because, you know, it wasn't road tested. It wasn't a thing before I recorded it. And so the banjo player, Tony Trishka, well known, very well known banjo player, came in from New York and I came into Nashville along with a couple other people and another guy came from somewhere else. So all of us came into Nashville into a rehearsal room. We worked on it for a day and a half, as I remember. But then we went to the studio and worked on it for two days. So all of this. I mean, what I'm getting at, it's kind of a stupid way to go about it, you know, to do it live. It would have been much more sensible to lay a blueprint and then build stuff on top of it. But I'm really committed to that spark that comes from from the live thing. And the same with the version of Privacy on that record, which features the sound of a breaking glass. So in the middle of the song, you hear breaking glass, which stands in for Princess Diana's car crash. And it's me throwing a couple glasses against the wall of the studio. And so, you know, I just sort of left the mic position for a second, pick up the glass and throw it. Another thing would be just a simple overdub. But it was so fun, just like choreographing a theater piece to bring that song to life. I'm sorry to belabor the point, but... No, no, and I'm hoping this was videotaped as well. <laughs> if you're going to bother to do this live... Like... It should have been. There was a guy that doubled on tenor sax. His name is Jim Deneu, doubled on tenor sax and digital keyboard nonsense. And so for his sax part, he like ran away from his keyboard rig, picked up the sax, went to another microphone station, blew it, put down the sax, ran back to the keyboard. And then, you know, the same thing for me. I played piano at the end of the song. I left my station and walked over to the piano and did that. So it involves fast movement just in order not to overdub for some reason. It's a little insane. It's a little stupid of me to do it that way. But performing is what I do 130 or 150 nights of the year. And then you go to make a record and you're like, oh, now we're going to do something different. Now it's recording. So it's a totally different thing. You know, I don't think so. I think it should be geared to what I know how to do, which is perform a song. So no auto tuning. 
It's a different matter. I, you know, generally not, but I have used it probably five times over the last 15 years. As long as you're isolated on your own track, what they do in post can be just not even your business if you if you don't want it. Well, that's true. That's correct. If you're singing live in the room, then it's not an option. But if I'm singing in isolation, then sometimes it is. And if, it, if it's one glaringly sour note in an otherwise exciting track that you want to use, then yeah, I'm the first person to go for the auto-tune. Another one of my guests I was talking to about, you know, recording his own guitar solos and was describing just the spontaneity of doing it, but doing it like 20 times and then have those on different tracks and be able to kind of slot in little bits of each. But it seems like even that kind of spontaneity is not something you allow yourself, that it's it has to be spontaneity in the actual context of the song and you're a good enough guitar player that it'll work or else you just do a whole other take. I guess how, how many takes about if you're trying to capture these things live, you were just saying you're one song a, a day and a half, but for a song that's less strange, a song like Where There's a Road, like how many times do you make the, the folks play through it? Well, I've improved my method as I've gone along. And for the last um, several years, I think I'm like a three or four take guy. I like to go for three or four takes just for coverage. And I don't like to have 10 because then when I go back, I mean, I have done 10 or 12 takes, I think never more than say, Oh, God, I remember that now that I'm thinking of it, there were like 24 takes of a single song in the last album. But that's really an outlier. Like 10 or 12 is a lot by my standards and four or five is pretty ordinary. But anyway, you just hate to go back and have all of this fucking administrative work before you. You know, when you go back and you're looking at 10 takes across the screen and you start editing and there's so many choices and so many decisions to be made, just like have the decisions made in advance for you by having three things to choose between. Three is a good number for me to sure. to have when I'm editing. It tends to like by the third time through, like, okay, that's a reasonable keeper. Let's do it a few more times and see if we can get it tighter. And right. usually it doesn't like it's not any better. It just kind of gets less exciting as it goes along. Like there's some magic number of times. Yeah. Well, I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, sometimes when you're doing it five, six, seven times, you're really changing things as you go. Like sometimes you change the key. Sometimes you're just like the song is actually coming into shape as you go. But more often, I agree with what you say 100%. And even knowing that, I'm surprised sometimes to come back and to hear that we've gotten farther and farther away from the source of the song mm. as we thought that we were getting better and better. And the first one is it's clear with the master, given the perspective of, you know, say a few weeks when you come back and listen. And you've got the evolution of that over your live gigs as well. I mean, are you generally... Like with this new album, had any of this stuff been road tested or this was all just stuff you'd worked up on your own? I would say most of it wasn't road tested, I think. Well, if you're trying to play songs that people recognize, then of course you don't want to play too many things that aren't recorded yet at all. Yeah, I kind of hate to give it away. I think I'd done Alabama at Night and Carolina Gals, and I can't think of anything else. on the. Oh, and Peg's New Old Man. I had done quite a lot before we recorded it. In fact, I'd recorded it before, as a matter of fact. So those three tunes, and I think, what, the other nine? I think there's 12 on the album. The other nine were unplayed when we were in the studio. But then as these things evolve and get better, probably, as you actually play them on the road, I mean, is that why... Yeah, then all of a sudden you have something better. You, sh you would do a live recording is just so you can have at least another something that represents the, the new take on this as opposed to the 10 years ago take. That's exactly, yeah, that's the risk you take with that. But that's just how it is. And I, I think the hedge against that is that you try to make the arrangements clear and simple and that you try to put some kind of a curb on your over the top creative ideas. You know, the lyrics at the forefront on that last record mm -hmm. and their stories and what the stories convey doesn't change no matter if you play it a thousand times in the next 10 years. The story's the same. So as long as long as I've really sweated out the lyrics and gotten them to where I think that I can't make them much better then half of the band's responsibility is to play around what's there and to kind of stay out of the way of the story and not to get too crazy with it. When I saw you, as we were saying, you had a no-drum, three-piece setup. How typical is that? Like, are, do you usually tour with a violin player or with drums, or that's just for particular projects you brought in drums? Usually uh, no drums for the last... Like, I turned a corner in uh, 2009 where I was getting tired of the configuration that I had been doing for the previous, I don't know, 13 or 14 years, which was drums and electric guitar and bass guitar and me. I was exhausted with that. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And I started doing these gigs just by happenstance where I was playing flat-top guitar on a mic with a fiddler. And 
I thought to myself, I love doing what I'm doing. So that was the turning point for me. And it's not that I hate the sound of drums or anything, but in uh, doing the music that's more like the music of my youth, you know, the bluegrass and the folk ear stuff, drums aren't called for really a lot of the time. And in some ways, having the absence of drums permits more rhythmic creativity among the players that are left. And especially if you have a string bassist as opposed to a bass guitarist, mm -hmm. the low frequency is covered. It would be redundant to have a kick drum in there, to my mind. And the uh, well, and the percussion, the that slap that you got, yeah. Exactly, is covered as well. So the drums are suddenly a lot less necessary if they were necessary to begin with. Then there's the uh, other element of having to tote around a drum kit everywhere you go and have that much bigger of a van and have that much uh, energy expended on getting drums up a flight of stairs to get into the club and all that stuff. So that's that's fun not to have a drum kit for that reason. Sometimes fun not to have a drummer. <laughs> well... <laughs> It's something that I'm, I'm grappling with right now, actually myself, after playing in a band with electric guitar and drums for a long time. My latest iteration doesn't have a percussionist at all, but we're bringing along a cajon. So the violin player plays cajon for a few things or have been trying to get the bass player. He, you know, he owns a pedal. So like we could have something, you know, have him double up on something, but resisting that and just saying, okay, at least most of the show is just going to be percussion free and we're just going to. See how that goes. It's an interesting, different challenge. Yeah, that's a good challenge to have. And cajon is a great instrument, and uh, balron is a great instrument. I mean, there's a lot of other ways to go than a conventional drum kit. I, for one, get kind of tired of this martial subdivision of the beat all the time. And, uh, you know, boom, whack, boom, whack, one, two, three, four. It's like boring after a while. And it's been such a mainstay now for 40 years of popular music or so. It's refreshing to go back and hear, for me, like stuff rock and stuff from the 50s and to realize that you can rock without a snare going whack every other beat you know they did it back then it's just a convention that refuses to die apparently at this point or you play with a drummer who also is bored with doing that and so <laughs> yeah, tries to true. do creative things you know i actually had a drummer that like he left after this band after our first album because you know teaching him a song he's like well i did that beat on a previous song which so in in the world even of, of country music is even more i would imagine if you you know fast like you probably don't have drummers that get overly creative in that objectionable way but what, what is have you had experiences like that where you, you have drummers that are not playing as tastefully or is it the anybody that will as a drummer enter a country band knows what he's getting into well, I've been like, it sounds like that guy that you're talking about is kind of entertaining himself more than anybody else. You know, he's like, yeah, I've been lucky to play with great musicians for the last so many years that it's hard to remember. But I've definitely had experience with people, as I say, they're, they're like in it for themselves and not for the song or not for anything higher than just, you know, their own aesthetic and their own personal ideas of what's a great way to play a bass or what's a great way to play a piano or whatever. It's just kind of nonsense. Well, have you found in rock... There's a strain, I mean, half of the influence on rock comes from, you know, at this point, has amalgamated from punk. In other words, you don't have to know how to play at all. I know you did an album with the Mekons that, you know, started with that ethos in mind. Like, we don't even know how to play our instruments. We're just going to do this as an art project and let the creativity be forefront as opposed to what our hands know how to do. Country seems to lack that except you know for a few what cow punk you know explicit i mean have you found in general the the level of musicianship is much higher among the country players at least you know in the circles that you would be familiar with than the wider circle of rock well rock's a big word but i think yes you know i think that generally in country if you exclude like you know insurgent or alternative country or that stuff most kinds of country, there's a definite stress put on instrumental ability and on singing ability. And you know what I mean by ability. Well, yeah. Well, and certainly bluegrass, like there's no room for you. I mean, I guess you could be the uh, washboard player, maybe, if you don't yeah. have really good chops. <laughs> There's some shitty bluegrass bands out there okay. that make a point out of, you know, we play super fast and we play and we're punk and we do this. And but it's so different from what I think of as and most people think of as bluegrass. I agree with you. I think bluegrass like and jazz also like they insist on instrumental excellence and rock, whatever that is. And to the extent that it's influenced by punk, for sure, as you say, that kind of goes to hell. I think there's a value in that point of view. And there's a lot of interest. There's some interesting music that's been made with that point of view. But I think it's just a subset to my taste anyway. I mean, it's just my opinion and my tastes, but I don't have a huge appetite 
for that stuff. It's kind of like, you know, we're going to have a new kind of writing without punctuation in it. You know, that's great. It's a nice theory. And maybe, maybe, you know, a couple of neat books will be written that way. But I think in general, we just need the punctuation. My theory here, maybe you can confirm or deny this, is that emphasis on musicianship is sort of a direct result of just the longevity of the tradition that we're talking about, that we're not talking about something that when people were starting rock in the fifties, like, yeah, most of those guys could barely play. But if you're looking for, you know, where they could barely play in country, then you're looking back to what the thirties, the 1910. Well, there's <laughs> a big difference between like being barely able to play and having a credo that says, I never learned to play and I'm, I'm all the better for that. And it's a huge difference in intentionality, although, it, you know, it might, if you charted it out, it might kind of look the same or it might kind of sound the same, the results. But I think the intentionality being so different produces quite different results. And I think that this idea of a music that, you know, you're intentionally unschooled and you're flaunting your lack of ability, I think that's kind of a new thing as far as I know. I don't think that was a thing before 1980 or whatever. I may be mistaken. I think Sir Douglas Quintet, for instance, you know, it sounds... Something like that sounds really raw and unschooled, but I don't think those guys were playing it thinking, boy, we really don't know what we're doing and we're just like fucking around. I think the same was true of, you know, T-Bone Walker. And I think the same thing was true of those uh, early string bands from the 20s. I think they all thought they were doing something as well as they could do it. All right. I guess unless we want to go off on another tangent, we should uh, introduce the last song. So I Told Her Lies from Southmouth 1997, your second solo album, you'd wanted to pick one of the funny ones. It's got the shtick. Among other things, in terms of introducing this, what is the historical route for this? Is there something in particular? Believe it or not, it's a guy called T. Texas Tyler ah. that recorded <laughs> in the 40s and 50s, and then he found Jesus, and uh, he made some pretty obscure religious records after that. But he had a great, raunchy style. And there's another Tex guy, Tex Williams, that's also kind of implicated in this reciting style, the comic recitation, which your listeners might, you know, a famous example is smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. All right. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. I've never done an interview quite like this one. And I thank you. It's really made me think about some stuff that I never think about. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. baby home one night after a picture show. She said, Rob, I'd like to take you in, but first I need to know, is it my body that you want or the real girl inside? So I looked deep into my heart and I told her lies. Yeah, I told her lies, I told her lies. Big and little, long and tall, every shape and size. And when she unlocked the door, I knew I'd won the prize. I couldn't tell her what I thought, so I told her Justice said, now do you swear? I gazed into her eyes, and in a voice sincere with fingers crossed, I told her lies. Yeah, I told her lies, I told her lies. Big and little, long and tall, every shape and size. Yeah, when I heard the word forever, twas then I realized. I couldn't tell her what I thought, so I told her lies. by temptation slowly grew i'd stalk a tramp from time to time i even slept with two but no matter how i betrayed her i made sure to keep it hid and every time she got suspicious well you know what i did i told her lies i told her lies well i chased women long and tall every shape and size she kept being faithful i kept up my disguise i couldn't tell her And then one day I died And as my soul flew heavenward I looked below and spied a graveside Filled with mourners and everyone in tears And when the preacher rose to speak I could not believe my ears He said I'd been the kind of man All others aspired to be A loyal friend, a loving spouse And that rat lied more than me So fellas, if you want to stand tall In humanity's eyes Just pay no mind to the laws of God Telling those lies Yeah, I told her lies I told her lies 
Wow, thanks so much to Robbie. Another genre where I was sort of out of my depth, but Robbie is a wonderful ambassador with a level of reflection and the ability to articulate that is exceptional, certainly in any genre. I hope you check out his album, Upland Stories. Go listen to more at RobbieFolks.com. Check him out live. It's a great show. And hey, I hope you go to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast. We've got some great episodes coming up. Next time with Nick Kershaw. Then I circle back to Camper Van Beethoven with Jonathan Sagal, the violinist from that band, who is so much, much more. Then to Ken Stringfellow, one of the front men for one of my favorite bands, The Posies. And then I've also just interviewed Clive Farrington, who had his giant hit, The Promise, back in 1988 with his band When in Rome. Now, I'm glad to say the download numbers are increasing. For this thing to be viable, for me to keep doing this, we need to keep it going. So please help me. Go like our Facebook page. Go share this episode. Share other episodes. Share the page on your personal Facebook page. Recommend this to other music lovers, other musicians. And it's always helpful if you can go to the iTunes store and leave a nice rating or review. As always, if you've got feedback or want to suggest a guest, or maybe you are a musician and want to be a guest, reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Really appreciate it. All right, until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>